1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that our, our faith does rest on your power, and not on our wisdom, and not on our ability, but we are saved, God, by you. We thank you for your gracious work on our behalf. And Lord, I pray this again, we are looking at your word together, that we'd be taught of your spirit, that we would hear of you, and that you would work in us, God, all that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we finished up chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, and Paul was emphasizing that we are not saved because we are something special. God saves the foolish and the weak. And that our salvation is totally the work of God. So in verse 30 of chapter 1, by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And then Christ becomes to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And that is pretty much everything. And because it is totally the work of God, our salvation, and Christ is everything that we need, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, no one can boast except in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That includes all of us. There's no exceptions there. And yet, when it comes to how we live, we still would like to have some measure of competence and ability. And we are prone to think that God wants us to try our hardest. We are saved because there was nothing we could do to save ourselves. And that is the same thing about how we live this life. We are totally dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard to realize that. <clears throat> Nobody likes to appear foolish, and yet he has said he has not called many wise and many noble. He has called the foolish and the weak. And yet we spend our lives trying to cover our weakness and our folly. You guys probably heard that a number of years ago, we had um, these very aggressive ground hornet that was not in the ground, but they were um, building inside our well house. And so I decided to do what every guy does when faced with problems that he, he thinks the only solution is either get a bigger hammer or start a fire. And so I started a fire. I'm going to burn those guys out. And Michael, who was probably only 15 or 16 at the time, was saying, Dad, don't do it. Don't do it. It's a bad idea, Dad. And I'm going, how can it be a bad idea? It's, it involves fire. Everything's good when it involves fire. So I, well, I almost burnt the well house down. Um, quite the story. 
And, um, and you know, I wasn't feeling real smart, you know, and um, I had the flames put out, but the well house was just pumping out all kinds of smoke. And so they, I've heard the saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. And so I think there's got to be a fire in here somewhere. And um, sure enough, the, the flames had gone up the wall inside and, and it was burning the paper off the insulation that was in the wall. And so, yeah, it took a while to get that fire out. I was feeling pretty foolish. But I'm not alone in my folly. <laughs> a week or so ago at camp, <laughs> we had our two mole boys that were trying to just weed eat, and they came across some ground hornets. I'm familiar with ground hornets. And the next thing we know is that we have a fire. And it was really fast. Everything was very brown. We hadn't had any rain yet. Well, one of the staff guys ran and got the backhoe, and, and there were half a dozen of us up there working as fast as we could to get it put out. And um, if it had caught even one cedar on fire, and there was flames going up one of those cedars, um, we would have lost the entire camp. And so the boys told me they were trying to burn out a, a stump that had ground hornets in it. I think they stopped for a cigarette break. Um, <laughs> It's a really bad habit, Chase. You got to give it up. <laughs> but I knew not to rub it in, um, except for right now, um, because what they did was no more foolish than what I did, and I was two or three times their age. Um, so Paul begins chapter two in the spirit of what he's been saying in chapter 1. Not many wise, not many noble. And if we think that we can even talk about our own experience with Jesus, if we think that we can even share what we know to be true concerning Christ without utter dependence upon Christ, we are sadly mistaken. Because we are not saved by what we did. And we will never see somebody else saved even by sharing what we know to be true. They, every person who is saved, it is the work of God. And we must remain absolutely dependent upon Him. So I think these first five verses here are really talking about the need for repentance from self and complete reliance upon the Spirit of God in everything that we do. So Paul says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech. The number one um, occupation of prestige that you could aspire to in the Greek-Roman society was that of an orator. Because if you were a good, trained orator, you could influence the entire nation. And there are cases we know of, historical situations where, where nations went into battle or didn't go into battle. And the course of nation's history were dramatically altered because of a speech that was given. And not just the content of the speech, but even the manner that the speech was given. So to, to aspire to be an orator was very common in the Greek-Roman society. And so in the, 
higher education, um, the schools of higher education, there were always classes on how to be an orator. Paul would have been a master at it. He was raised in the Greek tradition. He was a Hellenist Jew. He knew how to speak. He knew how to, how to put on that, that, that skill of an orator and move people by how he spoke. And he purposed not to. I find that amazing. There are some people who are just naturally gifted. Other people who have developed gifts by hard work. God gives gifts. God is the one who gives natural ability. God is the one who allows us to refine natural ability. But God is not looking for anybody with natural ability or even with refined ability. He is looking for people with availability who say, Lord, I am weak and foolish, but I'm available. And Paul knew that he had to lay all that refined ability to the side. I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Didn't do it. Could have, but he didn't. Before he came to Corinth, he had been in Athens, Greek society. And he had an audience there. But even there, he wasn't trying to impress philosophers. He was trying to give a very simple message as simply as he could. This is not to say that he didn't come prepared, that Paul didn't study. We know he had an incredible command of Scripture. You can't read any of his letters and not realize that he is drawing from the Old Testament from all over. This was a man who knew his Bible. He was an educated, equipped man. And he's not disdaining that. There is a place for education and there's a place to be equipped. No person should stand up and preach who has not been prepared mentally as well as spiritually. But if we're relying on our natural ability or relying upon our preparation rather than the Spirit of God, it is an activity of the flesh, and it won't profit. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He didn't come preaching Himself or His ability. I've put it aside Proclaiming to you the testimony of God. That's one of the hard things, isn't it, about giving a testimony, our own personal testimony. And Paul shared his testimony with people. And we read through the book of Acts, and people were routinely sharing about the living Christ and what he had done in their lives. But the danger is is to begin to preach ourselves and not Jesus. And what people are left with is the testifier rather than the one that we are supposedly testifying of. And for that reason, Paul wants to make sure that people are left with Jesus, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I want to speak, you want to speak with power, with clarity, with conviction, and see lives changed. 
and we all can. But it only comes as we determine to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Repenting of self, putting aside all reliance on our own abilities, and trusting completely in Jesus. It is the message of the cross. And the message of the cross, as I said last week, is death to self. So how can I rely upon self while preaching a message of death to self? Makes no sense. And Paul says, I won't do that. I won't have my message contradict my means. The means and the message have to match. And so my means here is utter reliance upon the one that I say I am utterly dependent upon to save me. We're having, I think, a great summer at His Hill with a great summer staff. And I have often said over the years when talking up camp to prospective staff, if you think that you are God's gift to children, please do not apply. That doesn't mean we don't want people who don't have you know, a natural love for kids, a natural ability for working with kids. What I'm saying is, we don't want you to come here because you think you are naturally gifted. You might be gifted to work with children, but if your reliance is upon how you've been gifted and not upon the one who gave you the gift, we're in trouble. And it will be a work of the flesh and not of the spirit. This is why God calls people with no ability. So they're not tempted to rest upon their ability. And God is routinely putting us into circumstances that we can't control, we can't manage, we're not adequate for it, so that He would be the only one that can do it. It is His way. But sometimes there is some ability. Paul had some. And we have to purposely, consciously say, I am not going to rely upon my education, upon my ability, upon my experience, but upon you, O God. I know the difference in my life, and I'm sure you do in your life. Last week, I taught in camp the life of Elijah. I've probably taught the life of Elijah at least 100 times by now. And I know the difference, and probably the campers do too, of when I'm relying upon past experience and when I'm relying upon the Spirit of God. We know. And certainly God knows. Verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I am thankful for that verse. It's another verse of personal testimony. When you go back and read the book of Acts, when Paul came to Corinth, that verse isn't there. There is nothing in the book of Acts about how Paul was feeling personally about his emotional state when he came to the people of Corinth. This is pulling back the curtain. You read Acts and just go, man, it's just another case of victory. You know, he walks in, he's all by himself, he meets Apollos and, Apollos and Aquila, and, um, and Aquila and Priscilla, I'm, sure, I'm sorry, Aquila and Priscilla, he, he lives with them, makes tents with them, he's preaching, and then money comes in and he's able to stop the tent making and, and, and a church is established. Then move on to the next place. But this tells us that wasn't quite how it was. Even Paul, 
not the least inferior to the most eminent of the apostles, he will say in another place. When he came to Corinth, he was full of weakness and fear and trembling. Thank you, Jesus, for that verse. I doubt that was every moment of every day that that's how he felt. But I'm thankful to know there were many moments when that was the case, just as it is for each of us. Filled with fear, trembling, aware of our weakness, good. It's like Howard Hendricks one time told a guy, he said, Dr. Hendricks, pray for me. I'm about to preach. Pray for me that I don't fall on my face. And how Dr. Hendricks says, I'm going to pray that you do fall on your face. I'm going to pray, pray that you are greatly humbled. And the next time he saw Dr. Hendricks, he said, your prayers were answered. <laughs> it's not a bad thing to be reminded on occasion of just how much we need Jesus. And sometimes that means being reminded that we are fools apart from him. We are utterly weak apart from him. Nobody likes it, but that is the truth. And Paul purposed to live there. Not purposing to live in strength, but purposing to live in that state in which he was called. Weakness and folly. That Christ would be the only explanation for his life. And my preaching, my message, and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Paul tried to persuade people. He stood before King Agrippa, and he says, I'm trying to persuade you. I wish that you would be just as I am, except for these chains that, I'm, that I have on me. There's nothing wrong with wanting to persuade people. But if that is all that's happening, is I am trying to persuade another person, and we're dealing with spiritual matters, it's going to be futile. Our preaching has to be more than the art of persuasion. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Sometimes it would be a long speech like Stephen's, and at the end of it, they're gnashing their teeth and grinding their teeth at him because they were convicted. At other times, it was just a simple word. And God brought people to a place of just being undone. Our trust and our reliance in salvation is 100% upon God. And our trust and our reliance and even sharing Christ with another person is the same, 100% dependence upon God. Paul will say the same thing when he writes to the Thessalonians in the first chapter, and he says, he says, our message came to you with power and with the Spirit. That's what we all want. We want to be able to live a life that other people sense the power of God and the presence of God when they are with us. It only comes in living a life of complete dependence upon, reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 
where we are not preaching ourselves, but we are proclaiming the one that we are utterly dependent upon. And in that, if people come to faith, it will be because of what God did. They will sense the power of God and the Spirit of God. And their faith, verse 5, will not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Amen. Amen. Clearly, I think everything in these first five verses applies to us as much as it applied to Paul and the apostles. That the way that Paul conducted himself is the way that we conduct ourselves in this world. Not just when we are having a conversation with an unbeliever about Jesus, but in how we live all of life. You wake up in the morning and you face a day and you're doing the same job you've been doing for the last 30 years and you go, Jesus, I need you as much today as I've ever needed you. It has got to be you. Because I can't do it. And in that, the Lord is set free because he's looking for emptiness He's not looking for fullness. He's looking for emptiness, that he can fill it. And if you're empty, you're qualified. That's all he's looking for, an empty vessel that he can move in and move through and that people would only see himself. In these next verses, Paul talks about that wisdom which he has received. And and there is a, a... a significant school of thought that these next verses don't pertain to us, that it only pertains to the apostles. I don't see a break here. I think what Paul is about to say about the mystery of the wisdom of God and how it was given to the apostles, his point is is not so much how we got Scripture, though this is a great passage to go to in talking about bibliology. And when I did a series on this last year or so, we, we spent some time in this passage but this isn't given to talk about how we got Scripture, but it's, but it's another example of how modern man is to live before God, even as Christ lived before him. And Paul's saying, as Christ lived in that place of dependence upon his Father, being taught by the Father, that every word that he spoke was from the Father, Paul says, we receive the wisdom of God in the same way. And I think the implication is not that we are going to be receiving in the inspired word of God, but this is how, again, God has intended for men to live. Yet we do speak, verse 6, wisdom. It's just not man's wisdom. We speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages for our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Now they understood. When you understand what Paul means by they did understand, they didn't understand, they knew what Paul, the apostles, what Jesus, what the prophets said. There was no doubt. It's not rocket science. It's not a foreign language. When Jesus was saying that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. People knew what he was saying. The point is they didn't believe it. They didn't know it in their hearts. They understood those words. When Jesus says that, proclaimed that he was the I am, 
They took up stones to kill him because they knew, they, they thought that he was blasphemy because they knew he was claiming to be the Son of God. They knew what he was saying. They just didn't receive what he was saying. They didn't believe in their hearts that it was true. The issue here is not that people can't understand plain language. It's that people don't take it as being true because it's a spiritual matter. And their spirits are closed to the Spirit of God. Verse 8, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood, for if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, nor ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. It's, it's not that they can't hear it, it's that they won't receive it, because there's no love of God in them. For to us, God revealed them. Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. It's not by persuasive words of wisdom. How did we come to this knowledge? By the Spirit. How did the Spirit get through to us? Our spirits were open. He didn't do this. We heard it with our ears. We, we We could conceptualize it in our minds. But we didn't get it because we were smarter than somebody else. We got it because the Spirit of God was working in us to get it. It's never about intellectual ability. The gospel is simple enough that any child can understand. It's about whether the Spirit is given the freedom to be heard. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And this would have been a direct frontal attack on those people, religious people, who think that some people just have greater spiritual insight than others because there's something special about them. And Paul's going, are you kidding me? There is no way that any person can know anything about God unless God reveals it. Because God, one, is invisible. And secondly, He's infinite. And third, He's in heaven. And so tell me how a fallen man, finite, who can only see the visible, who cannot go to heaven, is going to know anything about God unless God makes it known. It is not because somehow man Some individuals just have a greater ability to acquire, to apprehend the spiritual nonsense. If God can bring water from a rock, God can communicate spiritual truths to a man who's willing to listen. It is not about the man, it is about God. Now we, verse 12, have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might know the things freely given to us by God. God gives us, gives us and I, I make statements like this, you know, in a church setting especially, and I, you know, God gives us, like Paul. Why did Paul say God gives us the Spirit? Well, who's the us? It's a church. What's he assuming? Everybody that's reading this letter is a believer in Jesus Christ. And that's a big assumption. Paul knows that too. Not everybody in, in the church at Corinth would have been saved. And it may be not everybody sitting in this room has a personal relationship with Jesus. You have not placed your faith in Christ. And if that is the case, then the Spirit of God does not live in you. 
plain and simple. He who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ, Paul says in Romans 8. Assuming that you have placed your faith in Christ, verse 12, then that means that you have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. That we, I don't believe only the apostles, that we as Christians might know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Maybe I'm wrong, but again, I don't think that this is just apostolic. I think it is normative. I don't, yes, it applies to the inerrant, inspired Word of God, and that is how we got Scripture, and I don't believe God is giving inerrant, inspired Scripture today. But I do believe the Spirit of God lives in every person who has placed his faith in Jesus. And the Spirit does what he has always done. He communicates himself, his thoughts, his words, directly to the Spirit of the person. And there are times we all know this. If you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. There are times when you've read the same passage a hundred times, and you read it for the hundred and first time, and you go, lights come on. Wow, I never understood that before. It's the Spirit of God. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words that you might be taught of the Spirit. It is an ongoing, active ministry of the Spirit today that we can all not only count on, we should expect it. We should be a participant in it. Lord, speak to me. Your thoughts, your words, so that when I speak, you are speaking through me. I believe this is what God has saved man for. To restore that relationship where we have the Spirit of God in us and we are in that kind of intimate communication with God where we are hearing the thoughts and words of God and we are God's mouthpiece in this world. In that sense, we are all prophets. Acts chapter 2, Peter said, didn't Habakkuk say, didn't he prophesy and say that in the end times the Spirit of God will be poured out upon your sons and your daughters and your sons and your daughters shall all prophesy. And what is prophecy? Revelation. It is the testimony concerning Jesus Christ. That God is living in us to speak to us and to speak through us. And many times it will be when we don't even know it. But those who hear will go, that was God. That wasn't Charlie. That wasn't Mom. That wasn't Dad. This was a God moment. And they may not even tell you they just had a God moment. Because sometimes it's too profound to speak about. But you know the Lord just spoke. And I heard Him. Even sometimes the person who just spoke doesn't know that they were used of God. It is a supernatural life. And when we begin to reduce it to a natural life, why are we even saved? And that's what Paul says in these next verses. Verse 14, But a natural man, <coughs> which is just Paul's way of saying an unbeliever, a person who does not have the Spirit of God in him, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He doesn't say he doesn't understand the meaning of the words. 
Again, the Jews understood what Jesus was claiming. But they don't accept it. And because they don't accept it, it doesn't bear any fruit in their lives. It doesn't have any power within their lives. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because he's already rejected them. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. When was Abraham saved? When was Abraham declared righteous? When he left Ur? No. He wasn't declared righteous until God took him out one night and showed him all the stars of heaven and said, So shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed God, and God declared him righteous. So he was an unbeliever until that moment. Not an unbeliever that he was an atheist. He believed in God, and he was even following after what God had given him. God said, leave her, and he left. God said, go to a land that I'll tell you about, and he went. It was years after he first heard from God before God said, that is a righteous man, because he believed what God said concerning him being a father of many nations. My point is that even before he was saved, to use the New Testament terminology, and again, Abraham's faith and being declared righteous is the example that Paul uses for us in Romans chapter 4. A direct connection there. But my point is, is that here he was as a man who was not yet saved. He was, God was speaking to him and he was listening. I think what Paul is saying here is that the unbeliever cannot, he's not saying that he never hears anything from God, but he is saying he's not in a relationship with him and he is not going to comprehend anything unless the Spirit of God makes it known. And when he does comprehend, truly comprehend, it's because the Spirit spoke and he received it. And on that basis, believing what God has said about Jesus, he is saved. But unless God breaks through, he is not going to understand. That is true for every person. The natural man cannot understand because these are spiritual things and they can only be understood the Spirit of God communicating to the Spirit of man. But, verse 15, he who is spiritual appraises all things yet he himself is appraised by no man. A man who is spiritual is a man who has the Spirit of God in him. Now in chapter 3, he's going to go in a little bit different direction with that. That's next Sunday. All we need to know right now is Paul's making only one distinction in all of humanity. Natural, spiritual. Okay? He's going to refine that a little bit more in the next chapter. But as far as this chapter is concerned, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Natural and spiritual. You are a natural person if Christ is not in you. You do not have the Spirit of God. And if the Spirit of God dwells in you, it is because you have placed your faith in Christ and the Scripture says you are spiritual. Your wife may not say so, but God says you are spiritual. Because 
You have been born again from above by the Spirit. What makes a spiritual gift a spiritual gift? Because the Spirit gave the gift. It came from the Spirit. Whatever comes from the Spirit is spiritual. So a spiritual gift is a spiritual gift because it came from the Spirit. You are spiritual if you've been born again by the Spirit of God. You are not natural. You are spiritual. If you are in Christ, you are spiritual. So then then the question will be, am I behaving spiritually? That's for the next chapter. And you can be spiritual and not be behaving spiritually. Okay? But every Christian is spiritual positionally. He is in Christ because he has been born again by the Spirit of God, and he is a new creature, a spiritual creation of God. All of us. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we, those who have the Spirit of God, those who are spiritual, which is all of us, we have the mind of Christ. Not just apostles. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. And every Christian has the mind of Christ. The question then becomes, do we ever hear him? Do we listen to him? Are we learning and growing in what it means to hear God speak, to think his thoughts? Because we have the mind of Christ, and the Spirit of God communicates to the Spirit of man the very thoughts and mind of God. What a privilege. It is a supernatural life. It's not mystical. Not ta- this is not a message about mysticism. This is a message about a personal relationship with the living God who lives in you. And he lives in us to direct our thoughts, to direct our actions, that we can become as tuned in with God as Jesus was. It's pretty amazing. Am I there yet? Nope. But it is possible because the Spirit lives in us, to think His thoughts, to know them, to be directed by Him, and that when people are in our presence, they are sensing that they are actually in the presence of God. See, our, our message came to you not with demonstration of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power So when people heard Paul and the apostles preach, they're going, this is like being in the presence of God. Yes, because God was in them, and God was speaking through them. It's amazing. So we don't have to try to act holy. You know, it's not that we, you know, scrub up and, you know, and and somehow make our faces shine. And then people think that they're in the presence of Moses. But it's a life lived in union with Christ where we are being responsive to Him, dependent upon Him, reliant upon Him. And then as as we are empty vessels for Him to fill, people will increasingly be less aware of us. We will be less aware of us and more aware of Him causes us to be freer because we have nothing to lose. 
and causes others to be more aware of the presence of God and the power of God and the Word of God as we live as just empty, dependent, reliant vessels upon Him. It's an amazing life that we are privileged to be a part of. I'll close this in prayer.